Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming I imagine you realize that spirit in action is all about values and doing good in the world, but it is, in general, not about politics. This is true in spite of the fact that politics strongly influence, for better or worse, how we are able to live out our values in public. Today for Spirit in Action, we're going to walk a bit closer to the political realm as we interview Gary Dorian, author of The Obama Question, A Progressive Perspective. A few factors influenced my decision to take on this topic. One is that this is not a case of criticizing the other side, because mainly this book is about a progressive evaluating a progressive. A second factor that predisposed me to interview Gary Dorian about his book is that he is a professor of social ethics at Union Theological Seminary. And not only do I value theological critiques in general, UTS is also alma mater to David Huber, a friend of mine and convener for the Northern Spirit Radio Board, now forming. Finally, I believe that racism is a very tender and central issue involved in this presidency, so it's an issue that needs our vigilance. One of the things the Obama question, a progressive perspective, helps us scrutinize. All told, you can look forward to important insights into both moral and political questions as Gary Dorian now joins us on the phone. Gary, I'm so pleased you could join me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks, Mark. It's a delight to be with you. You're over at Union Theological Seminary and at Columbia University. How do you split your time between them? What's your roles at those two places? My primary responsibility is at Union Seminary. And at Columbia, I don't do any undergrad students. It's all just at the graduate level. There are three of us who uh, have appointments at both places, and it's something of a of an experiment between the two institutions to see if they could get more cooperation than they had historically. So we're kind of an experiment. One of the things I note is that your appointment at Union Theological is Reinhold Niebuhr, Professor of Social Ethics. What does that mean? Well, social ethics is a field that was invented in the 1880s. It's a social gospel movement that really gave birth to not just to social ethics, but to the whole modern concern with social issues in the churches. This is not coincidentally, this is the same time at which sociology itself as a field is invented, and it's for a similar reason. The discovery that there's, there's such a thing as social structure, that groups or institutions have characteristics that don't just break down to their constitutive parts, but which have characteristics themselves that need to be sort of studied and dealt with and the like. 
And so one way that that affected the um, study of religion was just the idea that if there's such a thing as social structure, then we really have to reconceive what it means for anything to be saving or redeeming or good or, or part of the social mission of taking faith seriously. So that's the root of it anyway. It's sort of an offshoot of the social gospel movement. And of course, the, the social gospel movement, it could have been called the Third Great Awakening. I mean, there was the one in the, in the middle of the 18th century. That's the Jonathan Edwards one. And then there was what was often called the Second Great Awakening. That ran all through the 1820s and a little bit before. If you think in terms of sort of these great awakenings of kind of religious awareness, of revival or whatever, the social gospel in a way could be understood as a kind of a third massive social awakening. Virtually all of the peace and justice ministries and fellowships that exist in the liberal churches today, they're all products of the social gospel movement. There was a black church version of it, and that's the wellspring of the civil rights movement. People like Reverdy Ransom and Benjamin Mays and Mordecai Johnson, these were the teachers, the, the mentors, the trailblazers for Martin Luther King in that generation. Well, your recent book is The Obama Question, A Progressive Perspective. And so it's about your estimation of Barack Obama's past and his measure from a progressive perspective. What, in your words, is a progressive? Well, the whole issue about progressive and liberal is mostly... I mean, I think that the word progressive is is wider and deeper. It takes in more possibilities and has better historical resonance than the term liberal. And yet, what these terms really mean to you, how one feels better or more inclusive, more progressive than the other, has largely to do with what generation you are and which part of the country you live in and how you relate to the whole past 200 years of American progressive or social justice movements in this country. For my generation, the word liberal was simply ruined by Lyndon Johnson. You know, he was a liberal. Well, if that's what liberalism was, and someone who dragged us into Vietnam and put 500,000 troops there and just destroyed the hopes of a whole generation, well, you know, we needed to run from that term. And then, of course, the right stigmatized the term liberal. I mean, made it, turned it into some sneer word, something that you denigrated, so that it got to the point that no liberal actually said, I'm a liberal and running for office anymore. The term was sort of ruined. And through the kind of confluence or zig and zag of those two things, this kind of a left reaction to liberalism and then a, a just ferocious right attack on the term, people who are in social justice movements have tended over the past generation to gravitate to a word that doesn't have all those connotations. So if you track this out on a 150-year you know, basis, you see that there's a sort of musical chairs pattern that goes on because you know, liberal will fall out of disfavor and then progressive will replace it and then the other way around. I don't think there's any question today that progressive has a much better ring, uh, has a better array of connotations to more people than liberal. There are people for whom when they hear the word progressive, they think that sounds squishy. They think liberal is, really means something and progressive sounds like kind of some kind of a sellout or so on. So, you know, it, it can easily turn the other way around as well. The one thing I'd say about that, because the word progressive is so much in the ascendancy now and liberal has fallen back, the one thing I say to people who don't have any real historical consciousness about this and don't, you know, they've just latched onto it because it sounds better to them, I'm inclined to just make people aware that the word progressive, the one thing that is definitely dead in the whole social justice faith from the past century, the one thing that we definitely don't believe in is the progressive notion that history is just progressive, you know? 
that everything will just get better if we just leave things alone. And I think, no, virtually all of us recognize now that if you're in a social justice movement, history and social justice are about struggle. They're not just about some progress that's going to happen. Whereas previous generations of progressives really did believe that. And that was the heart of progressivism, that the world is getting better. And we just need to uh, you know, allow its uh, betterness to take hold. Well, this show is Spirit in Action. So my hope is to do some estimation of President Obama as a spirit in action. To what degree does he measure up to that goal? How would you go about determining that? Well, I think the whole gestalt of the person, firstly, his spirit, what he stands for, what the way that he appeals to people, his capacities for empathy, his largeness of vision. First thing he does as president is, uh, goes to Cairo. He thinks it matters that the image of the United States just went down dramatically on the watch of the previous president, and he's a kind of restorer, repairer of the breach, wants to make a difference so that people work together. He his own work started out as a community organizer. And community organizers, they go around, they do their every member canvas, they say, okay, what are the needs in this community? And then they're always using that account of the needs to try to get people to pull together and to work together. And I think those qualities of Obama, though I think in some ways they've been to his detriment as president, those are beautiful qualities. They're, they're deep in him. His mother was someone who spent you know, most of her life you know, trying to get uh, access to credit for poor people in you know, third world situations and the like. She was a community organizer before he was. So I think those skills and that temperament and the, the good-willed spirit that Obama has, it often seems like people don't see it or don't even recognize it. He's, he's had so much vituperation sort of poured on him and so much legitimate criticism, I think, from people who work very hard to get him elected. But I do believe this is about as compelling a human being as we could ever see elected to the presidency. I guess it goes without saying that you don't believe he's a secret Muslim. No. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, there's been so much ridiculous attack on him with various scurrilous accusations. That was the one part of this book I wasn't quite ready for. I mean, I, when, once I decided to write it, I keep up on this policy stuff all the time anyway, so I, I had no trouble just sitting down and writing chapters about saving capitalism from itself and the, the, the health care issue and foreign policy and all that sort of thing. But I had only really tasted the conspiracy literature before, and I didn't have a sense of just how much of it there is and how many of these books are bestsellers and how much of it feeds this just constant vituperation in in talk radio around the country, that this is just a huge industry. And that part of it was very chastening, just to see the, the sheer enmity that informs it, and it's kind of frightening. You know, when you were explaining, Gary, the post you have, the Reinhold Niebuhr Professor of Social Ethics at Union Theological Seminary, you didn't explain the Reinhold Niebuhr part of that. Could you explain so that people know this perspective you're bringing to this analysis? Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was the most famous uh, social ethicist this country has produced and was really the the most famous and important American theologian of the 20th century. He taught at Union Seminary. For many years, when people would ask the question, you know, what is social ethics? Often, you know, one one of the stock answers is, well, that's what Reinhold Niebuhr does at Union Theological Seminary. I mean, whatever social ethics is, I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing he does. And it's certainly the sort of thing that I do, too. It's only one half of my work. The other half of my work deals with issues in modern religious and philosophical thought, uh, going back for 
last 200 years. And I have a new book of, of that sort out right now called uh, Kantian Reason and Hegelian Spirit. But the other half of my work deals with social ethics. And this is where you're dealing with social theory, Christian ethics, politics, anything that has to do with uh, the common good, with the struggle for social justice. And uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was a towering figure. He zigged and zagged. His politics changed several times over the course of the 20th century. So people relate to him in different ways. I mean, he had a period when he was an idealistic and a pacifist, and then he turned on that with a vengeance, and he developed a particular kind of just war theory, and later on he became a, one of the chief theorists of the Cold War, Cold War militarism. But then he turned against that in the late 1950s, felt that the Cold War was being overly militarized and ideologized, came out early against the Vietnam War. There's a considerable zig and zag in Niebuhr's own uh, politics. But what you always have with him is a deep passion for answering the question, what kind of politics best and most realistically serves the struggle for social justice? And what, what gains towards social justice are actually attainable? So always a strong emphasis on political reality and just what ways we're constrained by realism. And realism was one of his almost a god term to him. So that's Reinhold Niebuhr. And so in looking at Barack Obama, I imagine that you would say that there's a very good fit. I mean, do we have a Niebuhr protege in the White House? Well, uh, Obama says that Niebuhr is the chief intellectual influences on his thought. It's clear that he's read a fair amount of Niebuhr. Niebuhr has this sort of dialectical way of proceeding where he sort of sets something else, something out, some possibility, and then he contrasts it with something else that's a possibility, sometimes it's opposite, and then he'll sort of work back and forth between these two things, and often not to give you some synthesis, not some resolution of what uh, was in between the two things he was holding, but instead holding these two things together in some kind of creative tension without believing that there's that you know we, we ever really solve problems in history. We just sort of hold things together and to create resolutions that then generate their own sort of antithesis, and then you work on that one. If you read The Audacity of Hope, that's, that's exactly how Obama lays out all of his arguments. There's one hand and the other hand, and then a kind of a dialectical push and pull at both ends. And the other thing, uh, the thing for which Niebuhr is probably most famous, there are lots of people who haven't actually read Niebuhr, because he is hard. But they have this idea that is true, that the key to Niebuhr is that this is the guy who, one way or another, he's always sort of dealing with this question of how do you hold together the moral implications of a fairly idealistic ethic, that is Christian ethics, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, turn the other cheek, resist not evil, and all of that. How do you hold together a Christian ethic with a realistic understanding of politics? and what politics is, which is just a struggle for power toward certain ends. Niebuhr is always dealing with that issue. I mean, that's always one way or another in his various books. That is always the fundamental issue that he is uh, struggling with on whatever the question is. Jimmy Carter said the, the, his great regret was that he never met Reinhold Niebuhr because Niebuhr was the... Carter but a fair amount of Niebuhr, and, and Niebuhr was a symbol to him of someone who, who at least tried to hold together the idealistic and idealism and realism. And that it's pretty clear that, that that's the case for Obama, too, that that's what Niebuhr represents for him. And there's now a whole little in industry of literature about people writing about, you know, how good a Niebuhrian is he and so on, cause, because Niebuhr is this totemic figure in uh, social ethics and social theory. 
the two examples we have, Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter, they're searching for that middle ground. They're trying to hold the two ends together. Doesn't it look like it's a complete failure in Obama's part because the, I, I blame it on the right, but there's just no way to bring them anywhere towards the middle. There is no middle. Right now we have such strong contention. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say it's been a complete failure. I mean, the House was on fire when he came in, and there are tens of millions of people in the House while it's burning. And he did manage to put the fire out. Now it's with a stimulus that's only half as big as it needed to be. But they got as much as they thought they could get through Congress. you got to get 60 votes in the Senate. Whatever you're trying is just dead without it. And they said they thought they got as much as they could. I've got all kinds of criticisms of how that went down and what they did. But it's certainly not a total failure to have saved the economy from going to an outright crash that relives 1933 all over again. And even with the health care, although I have all kinds of criticisms about how he did it and when he did it and the way he went about it and what we got and so on, nonetheless, for all of that went wrong and that wasn't good about it, he's going to have gotten 34 million people covered who weren't covered before. We're not going to have the same burden on emergency rooms where that, you know, the emergency room is just the only site of care for tens of millions of people. He did deal with the pre-existing conditions and with people losing their health care coverage for all manner of, you know, bad reasons, or even just for, you know, allowing people to be able to put their 23-year-old on their health care. And he was motivated to do it because of that very thing, because in, in the 2008 campaign, he's meeting people day after day who are telling him their stories. They've been screwed over by the health care system and what it meant to them. He didn't have that much passion about health care when he started the campaign. It was, it was Hillary that had all the passion on this, and he criticized her for having the mandate. And yet by the end of the campaign, when he's running against McCain, he is passionate about health care. That's because the suffering of real people got to him. So it, it, it was so much the case that barely a couple months later, when he's president, he puts it right up at the top. He says, okay, now we're doing health care next. He had one person on his entire team who wanted to do it. The rest of them were all against it. But for better and for worse, he cared enough to risk his entire presidency in order to get more people covered. The thing that I was saying was a complete failure is to bring the sides together. And yeah. that I don't think I've ever seen a more acrimonious environment, no. political environment in my life. And I guess I fault him, maybe, and a, certainly a number of people have that he's tried to compromise and compromise and compromise, and he's bent over backwards to reach yep. the other side, given up nine-tenths from his side to get one-tenth, and then they don't give him a vote anyhow. So is this striving towards the middle a useless thing? Maybe he should have taken the same approach that Scott Walker took in Wisconsin and said, okay, we've got enough votes to pass it. We'll ignore completely what 49% of the population want, and we're going to push through because we've got 51%. Is that a fair criticism, or is that a stupid oh, well, criticism, that, that, or what is that's that? That's a very good summary of what happened a lot last summer. He got caught in a hostage situation that was part of his making and then, and then just suffered for it. We got caught in that situation because the previous December, December you know, 2010, after the midterm election, the Bush tax cuts are running out, and it's a major campaign promise that he would let the Bush tax cuts expire for the upper end. So here he is betraying a major campaign promise because they've got him by the short hairs. They say, well, you know, we're going to just let the whole thing go if you don't give us what we want. And, of course, he wanted to extend the tax cuts to the middle class. So they had him. But he could have. I mean, Geithner's own team is saying, if we're going to break a major campaign promise on the Bush tax cuts, let's at least say 
right now, the quid pro quo for that is we're going to deal with the debt ceiling right now. We're not going to let that destroy the rest of our of this term with what they could do to us. And Obama, incredibly, says, oh, no, we, we shouldn't do, we can't do that. We must trust that, there is, that re- Republicans will do the responsible thing when that comes along, which was, of course, spectacularly not to be. So, you know, that's, he ended up making that bed. Uh, but that was largely still that sort of goodwill of his, that thinking that sooner or later people are going to recognize on the other side of the fence that I have all this goodwill and I want to work with people and so on. It took three years of getting beaten up by the most obstructionist Congress we've ever seen to get the picture. And and it took that long for him because he is a likable type who this has always worked for him. I mean, it's not just the shtick. He believes in it. it his whole career has been based on being a likable person who could bring people together. He has this sort of personal magnetism that had always drawn people to him. Well, of course he believed in it. He really thought that he could extend it across the aisle and could work with Republicans in Congress. What a terrible joke that was. But he did believe it. And I think he believed it way right up till about August 1st of last year. And now he knows better. Is this a practical failing or a moral failing of his? Because he should have seen that they were going to be unreasonable, or he should have believed that they would be as contentious or politically motivated. Or from a Niburian point of view, he should have chosen the practical solution. And was he bad at that? It's a tricky business because it's not like he didn't know. When he was just deciding to run, I mean, we're getting pretty close to running, goes to Tom Harkin's steak fry there that they have in Indianola, Iowa every summer, shows up to it, gets a vast throng. Just huge numbers come out to meet him, and they all just want to be around him and so on. And he gave a pretty blistering talk at that steak fry, describing how, he said, you know, the Republican Party has virtually no concept of a common good. It really doesn't believe in using government as an instrumentality to help people. The Republican Party is all about ripping apart whatever we have in order to help lift people up or to give people some kind of security or simply to make us a better nation together. The Republican ideology is all about saying, no, we don't owe responsibilities to each other. It's all just predatory, cutthroat individualism uh, in which uh, what we want to do is sort of get rid of all of this stuff that in any way is a kind of outgrowth of believing that we owe obligations to each other in this society. He went right down the list of just naming the issues, all the ways in which that shows, and then he came right back to his thesis at the end. He says, it would be hard to exaggerate the degree that this is true, that just this basic predisposition underlies virtually everything that the Republican Party does. He says, I've you know, stood there and watched it. Well, I mean, there it was. <laughs> it's all laid out. It's not like he didn't believe it. He stopped giving that kind of speech once he became president because, one, he needs to, you know, he's trying to get Republicans not to behave that way. You know, he keeps telling them, I expect you to behave differently. You know, let's work together for the common good. But it's not like he didn't get this before. And there is also this sort of political aspect to it. Every president finally is elected by the independents in the middle. All elections are about getting to that 5 to 10% of independents in the middle who are going to swing one way or another. And they like this. I mean, that this is one of the things about Obama that, you know, got him elected to begin with, saying, I, I can do this. I, I believe in operating that way. So you've got to at least give some kind of lip service to it. So I come back to the same question. Is this a, a practical or a moral failing of his that he ignored what he had already given a speech on? He, he, he recognized it, evidently, 
why didn't he live up to that? And I'm assuming that the charge from the left is that this is actually a moral failing. He was selling us out. Well, I'm gonna, I will get there. But, you know, firstly, there's just always the political constraint. The first issue was the stimulus, right? His own people, Christina Romer and Larry Summers, say, we've got it. it $1.2 trillion is not too much. In fact, there's, there, there's no such thing that would be too much, given this enormous crisis that we're in. We've got to get as much as we can. So it was strictly a political calculus, what they could get through. They knew it wasn't enough. So they, the amount that they got through, I think, did an, an awful lot of good. I think there was a huge mistake next. He needed to stay focused on that issue. I mean, that's what people are suffering from the most, more than anything else, just an economy that's just not working for people. He needed to keep his eye on that ball and do what was necessary to get the economy working for everyone. Instead, he went for health care. Now, as I said, there are all kinds of problems with the way he went about health care, but even there, I, you know, I do give him credit for a, like a moral disposition, a moral concern that made him risk everything for health care. But there is a question about a sort of a deeper moral passion here. I mean, is he, is he driven by kind of outrage against social injustice that would say, I'm willing to risk all of it for the sake of an objective that is so worthy on its own terms morally that that's where I'm going to plant the flag and I'm going to fight for this. Obviously, he never did that. I, I think that is the great failing of his first term, that there's just not on any of these really big issues did he ever just put a marker down and say, this is what we've got to have, otherwise a half a loaf is just not worth it. I think this quality was lacking, and it marks him off from someone like Roosevelt, I mean, here's Franklin Roosevelt willing to say, you know, the economic royalists, they hate me, and I, I welcome their hatred as a badge of honor. You know, they should. I'm probably not doing my job if I don't make them uncomfortable. Obama, on the other hand, meeting with the bankers two months into his presidency, stands there and says, I'm the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks, right? So we need to all be in this together, so we'll get through it together. Yeah, well, they got together and opposed virtually everything in the financial reform bill. And now they're trying to get rid of what parts did get through. We're speaking with Gary Dorian. He is Reinhold Niebuhr Professor of Social Ethics at Union Theological Seminary, and he's Professor of Religion at Columbia University. And he's author of a recent book, The Obama Question, A Progressive Perspective. And Gary, one of the questions I have right now is, you certainly have a lot of criticism for Obama and his presidency. Were there points along the way where you either did or came very close to giving up any hope of his presidency? Well, when I was uh, writing this book last summer, there were times when I just had to push it away and thought, oh, I can't go through with this. I mean, that in a way, that was the worst time to be trying to assemble a case for him when it was just so dreadful. But, you know, there are always three things that got me to hang in there. One is that, first, this is a historic presidency. This presidency is, in some ways, a response to and has some relationship to 246 years of shadow slavery and 100 years of just vicious racial segregation in this country and the aftermath of all of that. This historic breakthrough has to be seen, firstly, in relationship to all that. Secondly, even last summer, even at the very worst of it, I thought, it is just too soon to say the things we hoped for in 2008, none of them can come true. It's too soon to give up on the hope that the Reagan era is actually going to end here sometime soon. 
Clearly it hasn't yet, but it's just it's way too soon to just say, oh, well, it can't happen. We're just going to live out even stranger forms of the Reagan era. And that gets me to point three, the negative point, which is that if Obama doesn't get in a second term, we're going to have a presidency that is going to be obligated to enact the strangest, craziest, most unhinged right-wing policies we have ever seen. Even if it's a personality like Mitt Romney doing it, he, he every day on the campaign trail, he's having to insist over and over again that, yeah, he's serious about giving the rich and the corporations yet another whopping tax cut. And the only way you can do that and have anything remotely like fiscal sanity is just to cut savagely Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and all the rest of it, and they've all got the plans lined up to do it. So we have never seen in our lifetime an election in which so much is going to be at stake and in which there are going to be tremendous differences between the two candidates regarding whether you even believe in tax fairness, whether we're going to be able to deal with the Social Security tax to raise the cap on it or not, whether you even believe in investing for a clean energy economy. All that is in play here. Could you give us a little snapshot of your background, your identity? Clearly, you're a progressive political person, and theologically, I'm guessing the same, but how'd you grow up? Where'd you move to? Well, I grew up in a lower-class area, poor, rural, kind of trailer parkish in the middle of Michigan. A fourth of my family tree is Native American. I didn't know anybody who talked about going to college or having a career or anything like that. I mean, I'm just the sort of middle-class world of families on television was just very foreign to me. And I didn't grow up with much of a religious background either. My family was nominally Catholic, but very nominal. But I always did have something of a mystical streak. And I got to Mass just enough to be very struck by the iconography in Catholic churches, but the crucifix especially. I did have some sort of sense of the sort of theology of the cross, of a God figure who suffers for the sake of other people. And then when I was in high school, I made a very strong connection between that and the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. was the first figure that really sort of broke through my lower class world of the next game, because I'm a jock, uh, so I was always in sports, but, you know, the next game and the season and so on. The first real sort of figure of transcendence that sort of broke through that for me was King and the, and the movement. That was pretty much the extent of my religious worldview when I did go off to college, mostly to play sports. But I would say it's still my, my bedrock. And then in college, I discovered all kinds of amazing things, which is, you know, that school could be interesting and that I could actually understand Plato and Aristotle and, and that it was all quite fascinating. All of that college did. I mean, my just being splurged into uh, deep pools of sort of intellectualism and, and then making the connection from that to social justice issues put me on a, a very unlikely path. But it always still took me years, many years before I ever joined the church. Since I've always been involved in social justice uh, organizing, in the early 80s, I was a public speaker for two Latin American solidarity organizations. It ended up making a difference that so much, I would say most of the work that I did in you know, raising medical aid money for Nicaraguans or being involved in, in resistance stuff, anti-imperialist politics, most of it was taking place within religious communities, in churches. And then I was one of the founders of Witness for Peace, and that, you know, that's largely, that's a church movement that, in effect, created a preemptive anti-war movement that I think did have a role in holding off the Reagan administration from just outright invading Nicaragua. All of that was germane to the kind of uh, religious sensibility that I developed. 
And does that mean that you actually joined a church, or I did eventually join a church. Yeah, I finally, uh, I finally, I joined an Episcopal church, and you know why that one instead of any of a dozen others? There were two factors. One, there was this fact that I, you know, was raised Catholic, that I did have some just enough of that kind of sacramental sensibility the icons and the like, that's in me deep enough that I probably just didn't want to be totally without it. But more importantly at the time, I was reading a great deal of William Temple during those years, so just a great, brilliant philosophical theologian, a neo-Hegelian, one of the strongest and best, most creative theorists of economic democracy from the 1930s and 40s. And so Temple was a, an influence on me, for me, in various ways. And just, you know, the fact that he was an Anglican priest and bishop, that helped me to sort of make the decision that, well, if I'm going to join something, I think I'll join that group. But I've always thought of myself as identifying more with the broadly ecumenical progressive Christianity. And, you know, they're just various sort of various outposts, expressions of it. Well, let's go back to the Obama question, a progressive perspective. Again, I would like to determine, as best we can, to what degree Barack Obama is a spirit in action or whatever the contrary part of that is. Let's put him in different categories. What items in his presidency and how he actually worked things out speak strongly in favor of him being a shining light in terms of spirit in action? Firstly, I think within Obama himself, I mean, he has this remarkable mother who had, you know, I mean, she, her her life in some ways is just a mess, and he was lucky that he had these grandparents, and yet she's also a spirit. I mean, she burns brightly. She could never join any one religious group because that would make her feel like she's cut off from sort of larger sort of worlds of, uh, of meaning. So she's a searcher, seeking her whole life and reaching out to others and making trying to draw people together. I think I think that is deeply in him. That outward reaching, uh caring, somewhat, you know, looking on uh, on life as an observer. I mean, there is a certain quality of detachment that she had since she was an anthropologist and that he has as well looking in often perspective that just that's requisite to from you know growing up in Indonesia and Hawaii and never really being home and never really living in a black community till he moves to Chicago and all that but i think this is a seeking questing you know meaning seeker type of human being who asks big questions who in the time that he's a community organizer in Chicago you know he he's working in churches mostly in doing his community organizing and asking himself, what's missing in my own life here? I mean, I, am I missing something by virtue of always standing a little bit outside of any particular you know, religious commitment, spiritual commitment? Would I be a deeper spiritual person if I committed to something? And that really was the issue for him, because his mother's life was rootless. She's a cosmopolitan, a citizen of the world, right? The fundamental decision he makes for his life is, no, that, I mean, I, I respect that. I has a certain integrity, but he's drawn into the black church tradition because he sees that it could give him a depth, a rootedness, that he can get deeper spiritually, just being a grounded person, more if he claims a name, an identity, a community, someone he's accountable to. I think that need to sort of root his moral, spiritual request in something, in the idioms of the black church, was very important to him. And it shows up in his, his speeches. 
That speech he gave after Gabby Giffords was shot. You had the use of black church repetition, uh, the saying of a phrase over and over. You had what in the black church context is called a close, although he had an Obama semi-close before that, but he had the close, the image of a little child, you know, playing in heaven, and uh, that's sort of what they call in the black church, it's called a take-home message. The elements of a sort of black church sort of preaching and idioms and the like are very much in him, and he hasn't had that many opportunities as president to sort of speak in that pastoral voice, since mostly he's just worried about how am I going to get the 60th vote out of the Senate. When he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, he got those secular Swedes on their feet cheering and Finns on their feet cheering for him when he talks about the divine spark that's in every human soul. That that's what makes it all worthwhile is to allow that spark to flourish and that we need to be true to it. So I think that that's, this is all in him. Well, then what things would you list on the opposite side, things that say he's not a very good spirit in action, not a very bright light for us? Well, um, it just grieves me that that he doubled down in Afghanistan and committed all his blood and treasure for what? He has to know that the people he loves, to, you know, the site, the Martin Luther King and Benjamin Mays and people like that, they're all against him on that. I get why he went that way. You know, it, it played very well in the campaign to be able to say, I'm not just an anti-war type, you know. Right now, we've got a good war going and a bad one, and uh, we need to get out of the bad one, but we need to do more where our safety really was at stake. So I get why that played for him politically, but I do wish he could have reached to a, a deeper place in himself to have seen that committing more more blood, more American lives, and more treasure to a a war that he he can't even he stumbles all over himself just to even be able to say what it is that's going to make any of this worth it. I think that is a deep failing, and it's it's one I grieve over. You do address the question of moral empire and liberal war in one of your chapters. I'm particularly interested in your take on just war. I'm not sure anyone really cares about it in the outer world. Oh, Obama, liberals, conservatives, who who cares about just war? Well, there are all manner of paradoxes about this, though. You know, the early Christian church was, was pacifist. Uh, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, turn the other cheek and all that. They didn't have any trouble interpreting what that meant. But in the 4th century, of course, this starts to turn the other way. And the political line, the political story, of course, is that Christianity became, first it was tolerated in the empire, and then by in 311, and then by 381, it's actually the official religion of the empire. And so you just have a vast sea change in the politics of the situation, where it becomes a kind of department of state and has some responsibility for conducting war morally or not. And yet that's not the theological line. Just war comes theologically, the argument is, is the one that Augustine makes. Faced with the fact of attacks upon the innocent, the command not to kill must give way to the command of love interpreted as the duty to protect the innocent. So that's the basis of so-called just war theory. It's Augustine's principle that the, the command of love compels us to prevent the slaughter of innocence. All that casuistry that builds up over the centuries afterwards about what the principles are and how they relate to each other and so on, that's all just sort of superstructure on an argument about what it means to take seriously the command of love. I mean, Augustine himself still didn't believe that self-defense passed muster. If it's just self-defense, well, you know, no, you can't claim that uh, as a moral warrant for uh, slaying someone else. 
But he does take very seriously the moral responsibility to protect people who are innocent, vulnerable, poor, and the like. And so the whole just war theory comes out of that. It starts with the presumption that on Christian lines, it's almost impossible to justify going to war. I mean, the gospel is just overwhelming in its predisposition against violence. But if the Augustinian principle is in play, and no, we do have a moral responsibility to the vulnerable, then you have larger sort of considerations about, well, then what would they be? Uh, and what would it take? And what are the circumstances on which something truly is a last resort or is a proportional response or is declared by a legitimate authority, etc.? So you get all these principles that come down. And incidentally, they apply to the decision to go into war, and then there's another whole parallel set. It's the same principles, but applied differently to now, now to the conduct of war. The terrible paradox about this is that, you know, just war theory, if you actually read it, it's a very stringent, very well thought out series of tests that delegitimizes, you know, virtually all going to war. John Howard Yoder wrote a book, the great American Mennonite pacifist theologian, wrote a book called uh, When War is Unjust. And this was, it was sort of a plea on his part as someone who belongs to a peace church pacifist tradition saying, and the argument was to lay out to uh, an audience beyond his normal audience to sort of amplify how, how stringent the tests are of just war. He's, basically, the argument was that he wished that the churches that claimed they followed just, theory, just war theory actually did. You know, if they did, all of history would be different. But the fact is, it so often doesn't work that way. Just the mere fact that there is such a thing, such a thing as just war, people invoke it. People who've never actually read it or allow it to judge, judge them, they just sort of invoke it as some sort of blessing for the next war if they want to go off and fight. That is the terrible paradox and really tragedy of, uh, of this whole subject. You're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, your host for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On the site, you'll find our archives of the past six and a half, coming up on seven years. You'll find links to our guests, like Gary Dorian, who's our guest today for Spirit in Action. You'll also find a place to make donations, to leave comments. You'll find a lot of good things out there. So please visit northernspiritradio.org. We are speaking with Gary Dorian, author of The Obama Question, Progressive Perspective. You were just talking, Gary, about just war, and one of the things that I'm sure it twists a lot of people's minds around was Obama receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. Of course, it was awarded just after he's become president. It seems tainted by the time he actually receives the prize. Yeah. Do you think they would have awarded it to him had they been considering the question six months later? Well, that's a good question. Perhaps not, although the coming of Obama was so welcome to those Northern Europeans. I mean, they were just so desperate for it. And he is still, he is wildly popular there. I mean, they, they are not going to get it. I hear this and when I'm there, that they hold him in such high regard as a liberal internationalist, as someone who believes and are working together, someone who's explicitly sort of broken from the unilateralist, unipolarist, sort of chauvinist approach of the Bush administration. So that just meant so much to those Northern Europeans that they were not embarrassed about jumping the gun, even though, to his credit, Obama himself was deeply embarrassed 
they were flabbergasted when they heard it. In fact, it threw them into a crisis at first. It was like, oh my goodness, what are we even going to say? I mean, what are we even going to come up with to, to say thank you for this award that I can't possibly deserve? I mean, they got it that, that here the Europeans are now projecting their fondest hopes onto him as well. And that very day that he got that award, he's meeting with General McChrystal trying to map out which of the big increases they're going to ask for. The Pentagon gave him it's the usual Henry Kissinger choice where you give him three options, but two of them really aren't, aren't acceptable at all because one is wildly optimistic and the other one is kind of ridiculous at the other end. So you just ask for the one, you know, you, get, you go for the one in the middle that you really want. That very day, he had that meeting. He felt the full absurdity of it. And he said it even when he went there. He came right out and said, of course, I don't belong anywhere near the company of Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela or, or even General Marshall, he said, than, than some of your other winners. All I can do is accept it for my country as, as something that I see is aspirational that you want, hoping that I will deserve it or work into it. And then he spent, you know, most of the time sort of twisting and turning on what, what it means for him to be as idealistic as he, you know, claimed he still was. But nonetheless, he is the commander-in-chief of the most god-awful military empire the world has ever seen and is not going to be shy about using American military power. To the contrary, I mean, Obama is the one who has just hammered al-Qaeda. He immediately doubled the drone strikes in Pakistan, went after al-Qaeda in a way that, you know, is not true of Bush at all. So he certainly has made a strong claim on that part of his presidency. I mean, Republicans will still end up saying he's soft on defense, but I don't think they're going to get, they're going to get much hay out of that. I have some of my relatives and some close friends who are very much on the other side of the political fence from where I live, and they can't fi- seem to find anything good to say about Obama. Well, of course, he got bin Laden, but that was really Bush's. That the Navy SEALs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Et cetera. And, and, and yeah. as you mentioned, his, all those things that, from my point of view, my religious pacifism, are not acceptable. Right. <laughs> Although it seems like they should be making all these arguments in his favor. But, right, but they never will. Why is it so contentious? Why why can't that side see and embrace him? I, I saw Democrats who were on the conservative end of the Democratic scale actually saying, well, you know, I can't stand those Republicans, but this Reagan gets things right because he is tough against the USSR, etc. It, it doesn't seem to happen in the Republican fold. No. Well, first, you know, they, they hated Clinton, too. And in some ways, the things they made up about Clinton were even worse. I mean, they really went hard for criminality fantasies, you know, with Clinton, that he, he murdered Vince Foster and he was a drug runner and he, he raped all these women and so on. So they, it was very bad at that time as well. But for all of that, this is worse, and it has been from the outset. I do think a good part of this is white supremacism being threatened, that this country is changing. It's racially and culturally increasingly a very different kind of country. If you take white supremacism seriously, especially if you take it so unconsciously, that is, if you just assume a structure of power based on privilege that presumes to define, you know, define what's normal, and you feel that all slipping away, that, that your whiteness just isn't normative as it used to be, that, I think, is terribly threatening for many people. It just makes Obama just the perfect symbol of everything that just rings their alarm. And that clearly explains a great deal of the Tea Party movement. I mean, the Tea Party, formally, its position starts out as a position against the stimulus, right? But that's an absurd 
position. I mean, it just couldn't be more absurd than that that Obama's stimulus was anti-American, subversive, and, you know, whatever else. What is behind even that absurd position and the way they, they hold to it with such passion, got to, I think, take seriously that the Tea Party movement is overwhelmingly white. It is overwhelmingly middle class and middle-aged or older. That is precisely the group that at least, you know, a, a sizable segment of it is just scared to death. Uh, what's happening in our country, the social movements and the like, and to have a multicultural type who's kind of from Harvard and who taught critical race theory and was a civil rights lawyer and who's black, and now he's our 44th president. It has just rung every alarm that an awful lot of people have, and it, sh- it shows up in the kind of politics we've got. Well, we've got to conclude before too long. I have a couple more questions I want to reach out with. So, Gary, at the end of the book, at, at the end of the Obama question, you ask the question, what kind of country this is going to be? And you oppose two characteristics that some might not imagine are really conflicting visions. Could you explain this tension between liberal and democracy? Well, I meant they're liberal in the classic sense of the term. I mean, that's 18th century liberal. That's, that's why I said in the classic sense. We're going back to 18th century debates over the conflict between a lib- the, what was then called, you know, the liberal vision and, and the democratic one. The liberal vision is, it's about individualism, that the good society is simply the one that provides unrestricted liberty for individuals to acquire wealth. And the more democratic vision is the one in which, no, the good society is the one that checks, that, that in which democracy itself is valued and is allowed to flourish and to be a check on political, social, and economic power. So you have a sort of conflict between the just allow individuals to get as rich as they want, and otherwise we don't owe obligations to each other, and a democratic vision which says, no, uh, why should only you have access to social power and privilege and wealth that, that America should belong to everyone? I think these two visions, these two these arguments about what would define the kind of country we should want to be, they are as old as American history. And I don't mean that, oh, you know, one side is right and the other is wrong, because that, that democratic side is just loaded up with racism and sexism and every kind of xenophobia through much of American history. And sometimes it's the folks on the liberty side who are at least champions of some kind of intellectual freedom, at least for an elite. We have this sort of family argument in American history over which of these visions is going to prevail. And they're both kind of pure types, so you never just have one represented by one group and one by the other. There's a fair amount of both conflict and accommodation one way or the other. But they are two distinct things. And I think every presidential election that we have in this country is always about that. You've always got one party just uh, saying, oh, we need to get rid of government so, so freedom can reign. And the other party that just... It's hard to even believe that they're serious. Like, what are you talking about? That isn't, that's not how freedom reigns. You just have a privileged group that has everything and everyone else is being crushed below. So that's the, the two-party, the two-vision sort of argument. My argument was that in the past generation, well, there's just no question that the, the more purely capitalist vision has prevailed in our politics. Ronald Reagan uh, convinced Republicans and a great many Democrats that Tax cuts just pay for themselves, so don't worry about it. We can just hack away at it, and it'll be all right. In fact, we'll be better off. 
well, I think we have to finish this off with some kind of conclusion. So uh, maybe a scale one to ten. He's a spirit in action. He's not. Where does Obama come on your in your personal evaluation of what he's done and what he aspires to and who he is? Uh, how does he ring the bell? Well, I have no idea how to compare him to just an abstract anyone or everyone. I will say, I think among the presidents we've had, he is way up there. I don't honestly believe we've ever had a president who cares about the right things more deeply than Obama does. This is why I do hold out some, certainly more hope than some progressives do for a second term, because I think he has got it calculated that there are certain kinds of, there are certain issues that just by their nature, they're second term issues. You just can't deal with them in your first term. And I don't question at all. This is someone who goes to bed at night here wondering, am I getting the most out of this job in order to help, especially uh, the least of these, my brethren, you know, especially the poor, the vulnerable, the people who are put down. I mean, I think he does apply a biblical test to what he's about. That's a hard thing to do, having that job, because that's a terrible job in some ways. You're the commander of the chief of a, of a vast military empire, and you have to make terrible decisions. And virtually every decision you get has terror built into it because the reason it's reached your desk is that it couldn't be solved further down. You know, if it could have been, it would have been. But any decision that gets you to your desk when you're president, it's because it's worked that far up and now some gut-wrenching choice has to be made. And now I make it, but then you have to swing 60 votes in the Senate in favor of whatever it is you want. That's very hard to do. And I hope uh, he's got the, the moral tenacity to sort of hang in there and get the best that he can. Well, for our listeners, if you want to get a good read on the broad scope of who he is as president, who he was before he's president, who he is growing up, there's a very good picture of him from many perspectives in The Obama Question, A Progressive Perspective by Gary Dorian. Follow the link from NorthernSpiritRadio.org, and you'll find out more about the book and about Gary. Gary, it's great talking with you. It's great that you brought all this perspective together a perspective that I share very largely about looking at a political world, which is a very difficult place to apply deep values. Thank you for doing that hard work and helping digest some of it for us. Thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. It's been a delight being with you, and, and thank you for your really good work. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song,